Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, it's been kind of an uneventful week, movie-wise, for me. Well, that's not true. I've seen, actually, some great movies. I've just okay. seen very, very few movies, uh, partially because... I uh, looked at my stack of unread comic books and I was like, I need to spend some more time reading comic books. Nice. Um, so I have, um, I still have like on current comics, I'm still way behind, but I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm catching up on some of the trades uh, that I was behind on. I read all of Batman Eternal, which was, uh, which was cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you uh, have kept up at I've all. I've not heard of it until um, now. Uh, Batman Eternal was, I guess, part of the new 52 universe. Mm. Uh, and it was a, it's a 52 issue comic because it was a year long weekly comic. Is the Riddler uh, in it? Uh, the Riddler is in it very briefly. Uh, yes. Does he die? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. Not very few, uh, very few deaths okay. in this one. There's one, uh, big one at the end. I'll go, I would say big within the story of Batman eternal. If I told oh, okay. you who died, you'd be like, I don't even know. Like, I'm not even sure you, it's a villain that I'm not even sure that you would know who it is. Is it egghead? Uh, uh, it's not egghead. Egg, okay. the egghead does not, does not appear. There's a, but, but within the story of Batman eternal, it is a big death. Okay. Um, but we'll talk about it off. Please uh, do. Off Cause mic. I mean, I'm fascinated to know if I will know who this person is. Um, uh, yeah. Cause I know some obscure villains, but you never, well, okay. Here's a clue. Uh, Riddler style. Here's a clue. Oh, okay. Because Riddler is accused of being a, a ripoff of Joker. Yes. Do you know of a someone? The next step down the chain, uh, a Batman villain who is accused of being a Riddler ripoff. There are a few. Okay. Um, I know that there's. Well, okay. On a few different levels. Okay. With Batman the animated series, so many people said that Clock King. Okay. Visually looks just like the Riddler. He's wearing a suit, bowler hat. He's got a cane. Uh, and people said like, well, you just went with the same design. It's just, he's more drab. Right. That's no fun. So that was one. And then I think there's a guy, Oh, what does that guy look like? He's got a big dumb mustache, uh, in the older, in the old comics, there's like a puzzle master or something like that. Okay. Um, but yeah, and I well, think there's one or two others. There's a guy with a weird, with like weird polka dots and stuff. I don't okay. know. I've, I've, I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of those lists of like 10 Batman villains you've never heard of or whatever. Yeah. So, um, and yeah. many of them said like this person, uh, was kind of a, an offshoot of the Riddler who was very popular in the 1960s because of the, the Gorshin, uh, performance. Yeah. Uh, Batman Eternal has a lot of the big, uh, Joker's not in it, but it has Riddler. It has Mr. Freeze. Uh, it has the Mad Hatter. Um, and then it has some of the, uh, smaller ish ones like signal man and, uh, Deacon Blackfire who I had to like look up. That's a new one to me. Um, and it's signalman. It's Bob signalman. <laughs> he's just yeah. a, he's just an alderman. Um, and, uh, uh, owl man is in it. I don't know if you know. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes. I, I knew who owl man was. Um, and, uh, yeah, little cameo appearances from like Ra's al Ghul is, is in okay. it. Um, uh, Bane's in it a bunch as is, um, for a stretch. Clayface is actually in it uh, okay. a bunch because, uh, uh, cat and Catwoman's a huge character, uh, hmm. in it. Um, interesting. but anyway, that's mostly what I did over the past week was read all 52 issues of Batman eternal. Okay. Um, so that's why I don't have as much mo- as many movies, but we just spent, you know, three minutes talking about Batman yeah. eternal. We'll still get to our hour and a half movie journal. Let's not don't do worry. an hour and a half movie journal. That's fine. Uh, what now, did you watch? 
before we get into it, can I plug a thing that I'm doing? Oh, please do. Yes, I'm excited to hear about this. Okay, so uh, now this is more a function of more than one lesson, but not com- not exclusively. Um, I am trying to get the money to publish a book. The book is just going to be a compilation of reviews and essays that I've written. Uh, I don't have time to write an actual book. I tr- I started two years ago, got about 65 pages in, and then got busy. Uh, oh, also, I'm not a very disciplined writer. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, uh, here's where it came from. I, I've gone to a number of conventions and film festivals where I would have a table and I would be selling movies and books and almost invariably several times, uh, every day, uh, someone would come up and say, Oh, is this your book? Did you write this? And I said, uh, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. Uh, and then I realized that like, I would like to be able to say yes, even if it's just a list, uh, a book of, of, of some of my better reviews or also reviews for movies that people maybe haven't heard of. Now these are these film festivals and conventions that I've gone to are Christian in nature. Uh, and I've done panels i've given talks and it would be nice to have something to plug there at the end not merely this is not uh, an opportunity for me to make money it's not really that it's sort of like exposure but it's also what i want to happen here is i want christians to become more familiar and more comfortable with the idea of film criticism as a legitimate uh Mm -hmm. discussion of movies and as a resource um just as you and i do and have for a number of years you know the the christian film industry is still sort of in its infancy and that means that christian film fans are also kind of learning what it is to be fans and what it is to think more deeply about film and i don't say that with any i'm trying not to sound superior or anything like that um, and so it'd be nice to, along with my talks, uh, be able to put something in their hands aside from a business card for my podcast that they probably won't listen to. Uh, but a book is a very tangible thing that they're probably more comfortable with and they can flip through and they can read just reviews, probably look at the movies they know, and then maybe hopefully that'll carry them mm-hmm. through to read about the movies they don't know. Um, and so I have a number of chapters, you know, drama, comedy, horror. Then I have one about blockbusters. I have one films about faith, documentaries, that sort of thing. And then I have just sort of standalone essays and some of the longer essays that I've written for school. Um, so that's the plan. I need a thousand dollars, which really isn't that much unless of course you're in school as I am. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so if you go over to more than one lesson.com on the side of the page, you'll see this thing that says Kickstarter, yeah. click on that. And, uh, this is very exciting at the $20 mark you get a copy of the book okay um we have price points at 5 10 20 30 50 100 and 125 so we're still we've still Is got 125 that you will come over and read the book to the person uh, i will sign uh okay. the book you will get you basically will dictate uh i think this kicks in at uh at 50 actually that you can dictate the content of a of one of my minisodes you can say what do you think of this movie and then i'll devote depending on what I think about the movie, anywhere from five minutes to an hour, uh, <laughs> talking about whatever film this is. Uh, and so at $30, at $30, you actually can ask me uh, a question that I will, and within reason I will answer it on the air, you know, nothing 
overly personal. Right. Yeah. Um, though I actually am pretty personal on that, on that show. Um, and then at a, at a hundred dollars and 125, then, uh, I've got permission from Josh that you can get uh, DVD copies of his films. Oh, um, fun. So yeah, uh, I would appreciate, uh, your support with this. I think you get, you get plenty of things in, uh, yeah. you know, uh, in, in as a what what's the term a reward you get a reward yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for okay for pledging money and so people can find that over more than one lesson.com right we've got Excellent. we're about 30 percent funded right now um but obviously if we go over a thousand dollars i'm not going to refuse that because that means more copies of the book that i can Excellent. that i can order so yeah i'm very excited uh, i was reluctant to do a kickstarter because as i for you and i've talked about this off air when someone says you guys should do a kickstarter for something it's like i don't trust people uh when it's a you know when it's a free podcast that's one thing the minute you ask people to kick in any money at all uh i i worry which is why i was like okay a thousand dollars that's yeah i think feasible yeah um dipping your toe in the water that's fine Uh, anyway so that's exciting sorry about that what have you uh, watched here's what i've watched david i was i've been excited for i'm gonna say a solid two months to see kong skull island and i'm not surprised that you were excited about that yeah i'm kind of predictable when it comes to that sort of thing (laughs) uh well i know you like creature features to use to use your term yeah um i have not been excited to see this movie i haven't seen it yeah uh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, a lot of people did. Uh, my in my uh, screening was a uh, friend of the show, Chris Mancini. Um, so it was fun oh, to fun. just wave at him. Uh, I went to see with our friend uh, Ian Brill, and here's what I'll say: is that in many ways it is very good. It's actually a surprisingly effective anti-war film. The the characters hmm. uh, tend to pontificate a little bit about the 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 way wars are started and often they are started because people see it as inevitable um and visually it's great wonderful use of color the film is obviously uh because it takes place in the vietnam era it takes place right after we have lost uh, the war in vietnam as the character as, as some characters say and then other characters say we didn't lose we abandon. We didn't lose the war. We abandon it, and so you have military people. You've got peaceniks. You've got corporate people. You've got scientists. You've got all these people together on this island, um, trying to figure out uh, what's going on with these creatures and with Kong and all that sort of thing. So, uh, but it's taking its visual cues from Apocalypse Now, and that's very clear, especially mm. in its use of color. It's visually quite beautiful, and there are some images here and there that are, I think, stunning. Um, no, so the I director's like name is Jordan Vote Roberts. Yes. Uh, okay. I'll look and up the DP. I have not seen uh, his previous films, um, but uh, but I, I'm I'm intrigued by this. It's not necessarily a new development, but with um, Colin. Oh my gosh, this is going to kill me. The guy who made Jurassic World. Uh, Trevor O. That's. <laughs> Are you are you referencing Alec Baldwin's character from SNL many years ago? Yeah, the mimic or whatever yeah, his character right, was. Yes. Hello, this is Colin Trevorrow. Um, <laughs> oh so. God, if people, if people don't know that sketch. The premise is that Alec Baldwin plays someone who can mimic anyone's voice, and there's a woman who's getting uh, obscene phone calls. Yeah. And she hires him. He's like, okay, I'm going to pretend to be you and I'm going to ferret out who this guy is. Yeah. And the phone rings and he goes, hello, this is Mrs. Devereaux. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, and so the joke becomes just that he doesn't sound like her. Yeah. Which reminds me of one of my other favorite SNL sketches of all time. Okay. When Matthew Perry was on and they did the friends parody. Do you remember this? No. So they did the friends parody 
And so there was like the basis of a premise, which I don't know what it was, but they had Matthew Perry playing Joey and they had Colin Quinn playing Chandler and Colin Quinn was playing Chandler as incredibly effeminate. And so Matthew, like, like the meta like level of it is Matthew Perry kept Matthew Perry as Matthew Perry kept breaking character to question Colin Quinn on his choices in portraying Chandler. It's a very good sketch. That's funny. That's really funny. Um, I'll have to look that up. I haven't. I didn't even know. I don't think I even knew that Matthew Perry uh, uh, hosted the show. I shouldn't oh, of course be, I shouldn't be yeah. surprised. Um, so, uh, yeah, the film is the DP's name is Larry Fong. Larry Fong, which rhymes with Kong. That's interesting. Do you think that's why the director hired him? Probably. I think so. He also shot uh, Batman v Superman. Okay. Now you see me, Super Eight. Okay. Sucker Punch, obviously, is a go-to Zack Snyder guy. He shot Watchmen in mm. 300, nine episodes of Lost. Need I go on? It's interesting. If you actually, like, combine all those things, you totally get why he would get, why yeah. he would uh, be the DP for uh, Kong. Um, so, uh, yeah, visually, it's it's good. It's a really fun popcorn movie in a lot of ways. And and I don't mean to say popcorn film in a in a derisive way you know those there are movies that are just that uh, it has some interesting anti-war themes i will say that from a character standpoint which is not necessarily why people see these movies but it could it could be if people let it um there are two really strong characters uh john c Riley, who's getting a lot of press for the oh, film good. and and rightfully so he's very good uh somebody mentioned that he somehow managed to be the heart of the film and the comic relief which he, which is true, and he's both uh, perfectly. Uh, Samuel Jackson is the, you know, the, the, the militaristic guy and sort of the, the villain. Okay. And um, we do see a lot of people die rather uh, horribly uh, in the film, and that's something that I actually appreciate. And a lot of the people that die don't deserve to die. They're not. They're not like this is not a hubris thing. A lot of them are just soldiers who are doing what their commanding officer wants them to do. Oh wow! And he is crazy. So it's, um, it's a, okay. So like, like rogue one, it's actually a war movie in a way. Yeah. Oh, undoubtedly. Um, and it really, uh, and the, the battle sequences, uh, work really well. Uh, Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson are unnecessary. Nothing against them, but those characters are not developed at all. Did not That's need to be played by big stars. I understand why they are cast, but uh, no, thank you. Um, hmm. I like both of them a lot as actors. Yeah, me too. Um, I wish that they'd given them more to do. Uh, same with John Goodman. He's, they they introduce him pretty well uh and then they don't really he needed like one or two better scenes especially because he's sort of philosophically opposed to samuel jackson so it feels like the two of them could have had a a couple more philosophical discussions but whatever um the big crime of the film is that i don't know who kong is like i you know the 1933 version where there's no mocap it's it's a clay creation and I get a really strong sense of who Kong is and his emotional, uh, I don't know his, his emotional state and, and you have sympathy for him. You have sympathy for this little clay thing. Mm-hmm. And then in 2005, I know that not a lot, not a lot of people really like the Peter Jackson King Kong, but that's mocap used in a way where you at least get a sense of Kong as a character with this. It's, it's a str- it, it's striking visually uh, whenever Kong is on screen, but at the same time, uh, he feels more like a device than a character, which is a kind of a crime when you're making a King Kong movie. Um, I'm seeing here on IMDb that it's just under two hours long, 
which I think makes means it's still less time than they spent on Skull Island in Peter <laughs> Jackson's dumb movie. Um, but speaking of Peter Jackson, I'm finding on film Twitter, at least, uh, a sizable sort of uh, revisionism of people like liking saying i actually like peter jackson's king kong movie i've always liked it yeah i know you have i never have but i i think uh and this is gonna sound like i'm being um mean or dismissive but i think this is actually an interesting thing i feel like most of these in fact our friend uh friend of the uh, editor large scott nye is a, a defender of peter jackson's movie and he's what he's like four years younger than we are yeah roughly. about that yeah Maybe and i more. do think there's something that like people who maybe were a certain age when it came out yeah. feel differently about it than, than we do. And again, that's not a bad thing because I think every generation has that. I think there are movies that came out, uh, and I'm having trouble right now thinking of an example, but movies that came out when, when we were probably in high school or sure. middle school or whatever, that maybe the establishment critics of the time didn't like, but now, cinephiles who are grown (laughs) and are our age generally think of these as good movies. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I do know what you mean. I and I myself am having a hard time thinking of an example, except I, here's the thing. So people of our generation, so Lord of the Rings started in 2001. That's four years before this King Kong. And this for us was, was very exciting. Um, the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings yeah. movies. Um, but people I know that are currently 40 or in their early 40s, they don't... Most of the, one, most of the people I know don't really have much patience for Lord of the Rings. They did not see it as that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, they saw it as a big deal because, like, oh, these are three Titanic movies that are coming out every year, and they're yeah. part of this larger thing. But they thought, like, ah, it's overblown, it's overdone, who cares, it's just typical fantasy crap. And so I just wonder if, if mm. they were at a certain age when it came out to not be enchanted by it as I was. Yeah. Um, but I, for me personally, because I'm someone who is um, uh, repulsed by nostalgia, even if, even if it's my own nostalgia, I've found that I have kind of the Lord of the Rings movies have lost a lot of their charm for me, except for fellowship of the ring, which I still really sure. like. Sure. But I think the second and third kind of, even the theatrical, theatrical cuts, which I've always preferred by the way, um, are what you're saying are what these people are dismissing. They are a little bit overblown, over exaggerated. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, this was a, a year or two, maybe about a year ago. Uh, Viggo Mortensen himself kind of talked some shit about the, yeah. the second and third. Cause he felt like, after the success of the first one, Peter Jackson went and did a bunch more CGI and like reshoots and, and stuff yeah. and like made it uh, sort of like, you know, responded to in Viggo Mortensen's view and maybe my own, the wrong things about, about the first one and amped up things that weren't actually what makes the fellowship of the ring a good movie. So when I did uh, my, just for me, uh, Frodo cut mm-hmm. um, of the three movies yeah. where I just focus on Frodo. Now, obviously most of fellowship is in there. Right. Um, but when you realize that, and I recognize that Lord of the Rings, it's not merely about the guy who is carrying the ring. It's about everybody, but the Frodo stuff in, in, uh, uh, two towers. Mm -hmm. It's like 25 minutes. And these are from the extended cuts, you know, the small thing, which is just him. And maybe it's closer to 30, but, um, it's him and Sam and Gollum. It's very small in scale. Yeah. And I, that's that, the best com- stuff. that com- well, I don't know if it's the best stuff, but 
it's oh. the stuff that's closer in scale to Fellowship of the Ring. But then obviously we've got, you know, uh, Battle of Helm's Deep, and that's that's what we're spending a lot yeah. of time on. You know, yeah. And it's funny, uh, we've, gotten, we've gotten so far off topic. This is how it happens. This is fun. Um, if you had asked me at the time, like after Return of the King, that's what it's called, right? Yeah. <laughs> after Return of the King came out, and I'd seen all three, if you had asked me what's the best battle in the series, I would have said Helm's Deep at that time. Sure. Now, I think the climactic battle in fellowship of the ring where, you know, where Boromir dies, like that's my favorite action sequence in the entire series. But you know what? That's not even much of a battle sequence. Cause everybody, the fellowship is mostly scattered and there's not a bunch of clear cut things that are happening as opposed to when they're all yeah. in the like caves underneath fighting goblins and stuff. And then it, it, the, the, uh, Balrog shows up. Yeah, by which I mean the boxer from Street Fighter Two. Um, I don't remember Street Fighter Two. <laughs> okay, uh, I was a I was a Double Dragon guy. Oh, okay. um, but um, uh, I guess what I'm responding to is the the uh, the the emotional uh, sure. uh, whatever whatever I'm trying to properties or whatever um, of of that climactic yeah. scene. It's sort of like. T- I mean, uh, I like John Wick chapter two a lot. Okay. John Wick chapter two has way more action in terms of just percentage of screen time than John Wick one, but I'll always prefer the first John Wick because I think the emotional motivation is more pure and easier to tap into. Mm -hmm. And so I guess maybe as I've gotten older, it's less about the spectacle of an action sequence. And it's more about my, uh, ability to, for, or, or its ability to resonate with me. Well, that's been, that's been a thing that I've been saying for a long time about any movie that is fantasy or science fiction or action or whatever it is, but especially fantasy, because it's a different world than the one we live in. Is it like the characters and their emotional state? That is our, that is whether we know it or not, that's mm-hmm. our in, uh, they need to respond the way we do. And, uh, it's one of the things that I think was missing from Avatar is that I I never really felt like those characters. Okay, yeah. The the, the world is beautiful. That's fine, but I feel like the characters don't actually respond in a way to their to the events or their surroundings. They don't respond in a way that we would. And so th- you almost want to say to them, "Hey, do you mind having any sense of wonder? Because I do, and I can't relate to you because you don't." Um, whereas by putting us the the key to Fellowship of the Ring is that you have these hobbits who don't go anywhere. And so they're yeah. seeing everything for the first time. It's why it's important to see things from the point of view of the non warriors. You know, if you focus on Aragorn, well, he's seen everything already. And so none of this is that big of a deal for him, but for Frodo and Sam, everything they're seeing is for the first time. And that's why that's probably why from a world building standpoint, why fellowship is so important. We see bigger things in the other films, yeah. but by that time we're kind of used to it as they are. But you know, there's a big moment when this might be from the, uh, the extended cut where Sam says, if I, he stops for a moment and says, if I take one more step, this is the farthest I'm going to be from home that I've ever been from home. And it's a nice moment. Uh, and so what the hell were we talking about? Kong Kong Skull Island. That's right. And I, you know what? I do also think mentioning nostalgia, there are people that feel nostalgia for those, uh, the star Wars prequels. Sure. Yeah. And those give people it, are coming of age now. Yeah. yeah. Give it enough time. And people think 
think back, you're like, you know what? That wasn't so bad. It's like, no, your life at the time wasn't so bad. And those were movies you saw. <laughs> you're wishing that you didn't have to work. You're wishing that you didn't, uh, that you're wishing that you, you and your wife loved each other more. Oh, that's uh, funny. And thinking back on those movies, it's that maybe that's my, why I don't like nostalgia Okay, is because now I, by almost any metric, I had a good childhood. Sure. I was not abused. I did not want for things. Yeah. I had a good, happy childhood, but I always wanted to be an adult. Oh, the yeah. entire time I was a kid, I just wanted to be a grown up. And so maybe that's why I don't romanticize being uh, a kid because like if you went to like 11 year old me and described my life as I am right now as a 34 year old, I'd yeah. be like, I did it. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm great. <laughs> like yeah. I have all the freedom. I could stay as late as I want. You and I, I could stop I want. this podcast and go get drunk right now. Yeah. And no or, one's going to arrest us. Yeah. Or we could go to, you know, Popeye's and get some <laughs> fried chicken. Like we <laughs> could literally do whatever. Hey, we you want. want to go see Kong skull Island right now? Let's do I'll it. see it again. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, uh, that's, that's what I want. And so yeah, I've, who's going to, who's going to stop us? Our fathers. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, and that's why I have an easier time divorcing myself from the stuff uh, that I liked when I was when I was a kid, which is why I'm able to say yeah. the Goonies is not a good movie. Back to the Future is just a, a it's a pretty good movie. It's not it's a pretty good movie. With a great moments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's a whole other thing where, where I feel like sometimes I have to remind myself that I don't hate back to the future anywhere near it. I actually really I think it's a really, really good movie. Yes. It's just that I react against everyone essentially like canonizing it. Isn't it funny that the film itself is actually anti, it seems a bit anti nostalgia uh-huh. where yeah. it's all yeah. about like, Oh, my parent or the past was very safe. I've got the past figured out. We all know how it works. And then he actually goes back to the past and realizes, Oh, things are way more complicated than I thought they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, uh, it goes back to, this is like one of the simplest statements I've ever heard, but so, so true and it's from comedians and cars getting coffee joel hodgson and jerry seinfeld they go out uh, to a 50s diner and jerry says it's another 50s diner why are we always looking you know why are we always looking back why are we so obsessed with the past and then joel <laughs> hodgson says because when you look back you know what you're gonna say you know what you're gonna say about the past and you don't know what you're going to say about the future and it's just yeah the past is very safe so much so that that safety can start to infect other elements of the past that aren't good, like the prequels. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just, you know what, that those weren't so bad. I remember having some good times seeing those. Like, no, you had good times in your life, and then you saw those. Yeah, and, and you'd seen fewer movies. You were less sophisticated. That's probably true. Yeah. Um, I, do, I still think that uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong is good for reasons that I'm starting to... And you were an adult when it came out. I was an adult when it came out. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, only tw- it's 12 years old, right? Yeah, I was yeah. 23. Um, that's an adult. Yeah, I got married when I was 23. Um, well, that's crazy. That does sound, now that I'm 35, that does sound crazy to me. Yeah. How old was I? I was 31. Is that right? Or was I? Yeah, I think I was 31 when I got yeah. married. Um, six days shy of thir- turning 32. I don't think I realized that it was that close to your birthday. Yeah, you're. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Yeah. As Happy a, birthday. Well, what's fun about it to me um, this is a, a bonus is I'm a guy who generally doesn't like, I take after my dad in this way and that I don't like people making a big deal out of my birthday. Yeah. So having my anniversary six days before, it's a perfect excuse. It's like, all right, let's take Let's go out, you know, we'll go to wine country. We'll do yeah. something for the anniversary. And then my birthday doesn't have to be a big deal. And I yeah. like that. I prefer that. I have come to just be like, I'll spend the day with my wife. Yeah. That's, that's perfect for me. Yeah. You know where point. we went on my birthday this past year? Where? 
we had a, a fine dinner at Chevy's Fresh Max in Burbank, <laughs> a chain restaurant that is a very quick lift and cheap lift ride from our apartment because we had art. Like I said, we just, just the previous weekend, we had like gone out of town. We're like, we're not going to do a big thing for my birthday. Yeah. Let's take a $4 lift ride to happy hour at Chevy's and get something cheap and be, you know, home and in bed by, you know, whatever. Uh, not that I'm never, I'm always in bed way too late, uh, but home in time. Anyway, okay, we gotta move let's on. move on. Uh, you saw a movie that's currently in theaters that's mm-hmm. directed by someone whose first name is Jordan. So did I. Oh, good. I saw Jordan Peele's Get Out. Have you seen it yet? No, not yet. It is somehow, like, I've heard nothing but great things. It was 100% on, on Rotten Tomatoes for a long time. Uh, it is somehow even better. Like, I was not prepared yeah. for how good this movie is and how many different levels it works on because it is just a really, really solid and inventive horror movie. Like not, I mean, it has a couple of those, like, you know, uh, I wrote a thing on like a little editorial on the website, like a year and a half ago, like in defense of jump scares. Cause everyone's like, sure. Always like, Oh, the movie's like jump scares. That's part of the tradition. It's part of building the tension, you know? Yes. It's a bummer when that's all there are, you know, when, when, when it's, when it feels like a cheap, when it's building up to something, like you think about, we were talking off mic uh, about signs and we'll be talking more about signs in uh, yes. um, weeks to come. Um, but that, uh, the, is it the, the Guatemalan kids birthday party scene in signs? Yeah. Do you know which, what I'm talking about? Yeah. Which never actually seemed to me like a jump scare. Oh, well, it has but everybody do, talks about it. You know what it is? It's, it's because of the, the music cue. There's a musical sting, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's, and there's something just like that, um, in get out that absolutely works. So as a horror movie, it absolutely works. Um, and it's, it's also a, um, very sharp and often quite funny satire, but it goes beyond being a satire. I think in terms of its examination of, uh, of, of, of race and these issues. Um, cause the, the, I, I would say the very simple premise of the film in yeah. terms of theme, at least is that, uh, um, a, uh, a black man alone in a white suburban neighborhood is, is potentially in as much danger as your standard horror movie, you know, right. protagonist. Um, and that's the premise. And so yes, it gets satire, but if it stopped at satire, it would be clever, but it would might be, um, less effective. This like cabin gets, in the woods. It gets so deep. Well, with the movie I compare it to, cause you went the horror route, the movie I compare it to, um, that I didn't think was that great was dear white people. Oh, okay. Because here's, here's the difference. Um, and I wish I could say more about this, but it would be a major spoiler. Um, but there's a thing like afterwards I was talking to my wife about and I realized like that was the white viewer in me wanting something to happen that, and I love the Jordan Peele didn't give it to me. Basically in dear white people, I feel like a white person can watch dear white people and still come away thinking, well, I'm one of the good ones. Right. Sure. And I think get out while having a lot of sympathy, not necessarily sympathy, um, but a lot of honesty, not like n- not seem seeming to be, um, gilding the lily or, 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 or exaggerating or, or being vindictive, um, with a lot of honesty, there is no way unless you, I mean, unless you're willfully trying to block it out that as a white viewer, you can't s- step back and examine like, yeah. you know, have I, have I played into, uh, this sort of, this sort of thing? 
Um, but it also, it does it in a very, like I said, honest and naturalistic way. It's not diagrammatic where it's saying like, here's this kind of white person and here's this kind of white person, which again might be effective, but intellectually, Mm -hmm. this is, uh, emotionally a very effective movie in both, uh, on one level as a white person making me, um, examine, you know, um, Mm -hmm. what I've played into, but also putting, uh, putting you in the mind of, a black person in this situation, you know, there's a part in the movie where a cop car pulls up and your stomach sinks. And like, that's far enough into the movie that you're like, there's all sorts of reasons, but it's like, Oh, this is what Jordan Peele is doing is he's getting us into the mindset of someone for whom a cop showing up is going to put you on edge and potentially means danger before anything has, has even happened. You know, yeah. that's, and I, I, there are more examples I want to give. Um, and maybe when you see the movie, I can't we can do, I, uh, I'm, I'm excited for it. Yeah. But I'll, I'll be honest early on when I first saw the trailer, I thought like, wow, that looks really fucking bold. Uh, and the, it, it and the is, idea, yeah. this is something you and I have been saying for a long time that in reviews that I've read and just comments that I've read, people are only now coming around to. So once again, you and I are kind of leading the charge, but that comedy and horror do go together very well. And not just, Oh, horror should occasionally have, uh, you know, some, some comic relief. No, not that it's that laughing and screaming are both involuntary responses. These two, these two, uh, genres, not the comedy is a genre, but like they're linked very closely in ways that we don't totally understand. And so the idea that a comedian would make such an effective horror film was very exciting for me. But at the same time, I did have the thought of like, look, I'll see it, but I, yeah, I got it. We're all racist. Thank you. But here's what, yeah, the movie does not preach. Here's what excited me. Yeah. When I, when I read more reviews is that, a, it's a horror movie first, which I like that. Yeah. And what's more is it's the people, it's what you're talking about. A lot of movies, honestly, okay, uh, things are going to get political, unsurprisingly. Um, it's exciting to hear my liber- my white liberal friends start to talk like conservatives, which is like, man, it made me feel kind of bad. It's like, yeah, I know you're not used to feeling bad when you see <laughs> movies talk about race. Cause you're one of the good ones. Right. Right. Exactly. But yeah. So many movies, I don't mean to say like, Oh, we we're oppressed. Uh, we conservatives when it comes time to watch movies, but it's, it's very much this, this it's for everybody. If you are white conservative or, or liberal, it doesn't matter if you're white and you see this movie, it does such a good job of, like you said, putting you in the mindset that you simply seeing things through eyes that you simply don't have. And so you realize like, Oh yeah, I guess we all kind of do this a little bit. And that to me is very exciting because that's real satire. That is like satire with, with teeth. Yeah. But again, like I said, it's not a movie that preaches because that, that would be superficial. I think not that I mean, preaching has its place, but this is a movie that makes you feel and, yeah. I, and that's why it's so much more effective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had, uh, I'm glad that I saw it, um, in a theater that would say the, the, the crowd demographic was pretty evenly split. Okay. Um, and it was very, uh, very interesting afterwards in the, in the corridor outside the oh. movie theater to see, um, basically like coming out of the bathroom, like 
two different groups of friends, all all black people who clearly hadn't come together and didn't know each other, like saw each other outside of the bathroom. They were like, were you just in there? And then they were like, oh, my God. And like shared this incredible moment. Uh, it was very touching to me. And I was like, I need to just not say anything. Because yeah. this is, uh, you know, uh, that's definitely... Yeah, a lot of um, people who would consider themselves allies, be they white people or, mm. you know, straight people or male or whatever, allies to whatever group, um, you know, we need to learn to shut up when it's time to shut up. Um, and I think, uh, um, yeah, uh, that, uh, as much as I love Get Out and I want to talk about it, the main thing I want to do is I want to, I, I want to, uh, uh, to listen and read more uh, Black Americans' reactions. Uh, it's not unlike the Moonlight, movie. which now uh, Get Out obviously has white characters. Moonlight does not, but I'm a bit. I really like the idea of more. Whether it be now, obviously, in this case, we're talking about you know the African American uh, uh, point of view, but you know, in the last few years, we've seen more movies that are from a uniquely female point of view and. Sometimes it's very much about what it is to be female and other ca- in other cases, it's just, this is what, this is this person's life. And that's, you know, uh, sort of like, honestly, as I was reading people talk about get out as a horror movie from a very specific point of view, I was put in mind of the Babadook, which is written, mm-hmm. which is a horror movie then a very effective one, but it is also about motherhood. It's what it, what it is to be a, a woman, uh, living on her own. She has a kid, but he's not going to help that much. Um, all of these things that I, as a man, probably I'd say I'm, more than probably I don't understand. And so right. I'm excited to see more films made from this perspective. And that is, yeah. that is, uh, effective with that audience. Um, obviously I can still respond to it, but it's not, it's not officially for me, but it is for me. It's for everybody. It is you for know? everyone. Yeah. Whereas I feel like there are a lot of movies, you know, honestly, I feel like 12 years of slave is a movie that, that, uh, that is for me. Mm, yeah. And I feel like that's not a good thing. Yeah. I would absolutely say, that. uh, last thing I'll say, uh, acting's great in the movie across yeah. the board. And, um, uh, Catherine Keener, of course she's amazing. Yeah. And like, doesn't it feel like she's not, in major roles enough, like enough said was four years ago at this point. Yeah. Uh, almost. Um, and like before that there was like, you know, please give, which was 2010, I think. But a lot of times she plays like the mom and yeah. where the wild things are, or the wife in <coughs> captain Phillips. Like she has a lot of small roles and like we need, we as the film loving community need to put more pressure on Hollywood to cast Catherine Keener in major roles. I wish she's incredible. I was talking with a fellow student and a friend of the show, uh, Dave Platt uh, the other day, and we were talking about Catherine Keener and I said, I feel like as an actress, she, she like missed, she's like in the wrong decade. Wouldn't it be amazing to see Catherine Keener and say a John Cassavetes film because she's such, she's so present when she's acting, there's just a qual. there's just this crackling quality to her, no matter what genre she's in, it could be drama, it could be comedy, it could be whatever. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm transfixed because I, she doesn't telegraph what she's about to say. She can make any, any line sound completely fresh, Yeah. even in a, in a thankless part, you know? Um, I remember 
in uh, the 40 year old virgin when I found out that she was going to be, you know, the girlfriend role, I remember thinking like, all right, that's unfortunate because she's probably not going to be allowed to be that funny or, or right. that notable. But of course she was. Yeah. And she, she took that character that what is often non character and turned her into a character, a real flesh and blood person. Yeah. Uh, she is something of a national treasure that people don't know about. The, yeah. that we don't know enough about. And I also feel like when she did have her moment in the late nineties and early two thousand, she was like playing variations of the same right. type of character a lot. And that's became how people saw her, which is the kind of like, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Like jaded, um, sure. you know, smarter than the, the room type of like yeah, uh, a very nineties type of character. Yeah, yes. Your friends and neighbors being John Malkovich, uh, lovely and amazing, that sort of thing. Uh, even full frontal, which I know yeah. very few people saw and very, even fewer people needed to. And, uh, and <laughs> such an, such an odd choice to cast her in Capote. And I feel like right. she, I'd like, I, I wish that she'd had a larger part in Capote, but, um, but she's, she does great in that as well. Yeah. And you know, she's sort of the conscience of the film but she doesn't play the, the characters like this wise old sage or anything like that as this this mystical, you know, the mystical Harper Lee who mm-hmm. just knows things uh, because, you know, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And no, she's just she's just Truman's friend. And just as you would give me advice or I would give you advice. It, that's just how it sounds, even though right. a lesser actress would have taken that part and turn it into. I am playing the conscience of the film or something like that. And right. that's just not what she does. Okay. We've talked about two movies in 40 minutes, so we need to okay. move on. <laughs> well, that's fine. Most of the, uh, these are all rewatches for me from okay. now on. Okay. So, uh, in my film history class, I saw Spike Lee's do the right thing. Speaking of uh, race, um, I would venture to say this is, this is how I framed it to my, uh, my students because it was the last week they probably knew that they did, they weren't going to be they weren't going to be quizzed on anything they weren't going to be <laughs> tested on anything so they they could have ducked out during that screening so i really tried to sell it to them and i said i think this might be the best movie of the 1980s um and i think it is probably the best movie that i've ever seen on race um but and so i i, I watched it and i was just it's my third time seeing it Every time I see it, I just forget that, yes, it's a film that does great things thematically, but it's just so alive. Like the way the camera is moving, the way uh, Spike Lee uses colors, the, 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 the way the characters interact, it's just such a vibrant, just such, such this vibrant film that didn't have to be. He could have made it in this kind of gritty way and it still would have been effective, but no, he, he shoots it and cuts it together. And the music he uses is so, I don't know. I keep saying vibrant and alive. I'm trying to think of like other, other adjectives, but it's just, it's a film that has an energy to it that I, and I can't think of other movies that have that, especially movies that have a message because it definitely, it definitely does. I would say, it kind of leads with its message, but that doesn't mean that it can't be all these other amazing things. Also tremendously funny. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I can't, you I know can't say enough good things about it. To, to me, this goes back to something we talked about in the last movie journal when I talked about revisiting seven seal for the first time since I was 16 mm-hmm. and like you need to revisit movies, yeah. especially great movies. Um, I find that the, 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 the stylistic things that, that are great about do the right thing 
have more of an impact on me the more that I like every time I've gone back because the more I see movies the more I understand what he's doing yeah because I think if you are coming at do the right thing from the age that I first saw it at which is probably my late teens or whatever um, I'm seeing like the 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 fisheye lenses or the wide uh, you know wide shots or, or whatever is being like him being showy yeah and I guess he is they're extravagant choices but it's interesting how much they are actually classical like they're rooted yeah. in a lot of um like old you know 1950s like melodramas or musicals or these kind of visual choices yeah. and that actually makes it more impactful because in a way to make it the the you know grittier way or the more down-to-earth way or that you know to go handheld or whatever mm. would that would have been the showy or more uh, you know in, in a way yeah. um self-conscious choice to make but he made this story that is um you know the edge of the edge in terms of what uh people were saying with you know in in american movies at that time it, you know uh and used the tools of the history of american cinema yeah uh, uh and, and and world cinema um before then um and that's i i think that sort of um uh that spike lee's is it's sort of you know he's uh i'm trying to think of another example uh of someone who who does this because he's it's not like a quentin tarantino like sort of um you know pastiche type of thing he's not necessarily paying homage to specific yeah. films but um he's he's making these choices that were probably already a little out of date yeah again that's what i'm saying that's the point i'm trying to make is that like if when i first saw it i thought he oh he must have been ahead of his time in making in, in making these very bold yeah. stylistic choices and if the more i <laughs> more often i revisit it i realize that he's actually it's actually kind of a throwback and what's what's thrilling about it is he's that he's doing something new with it yeah yeah it's it really uh you're right there's such pressure doing what we do to just see new movies like oh i've got three hours am i going to see a movie i haven't seen whether it be new or older or do i revisit a film right yes revisiting a film that you love and that is great is never a bad idea. It might not be the best idea in that particular moment, but it's never a bad idea. Yeah. And yeah, do the right thing is a film that when I, when I think, when I thought back on it, I thought like, yeah, that's an amazing film. But I remember the ending and I remember that it's not that it's heavy handed, but it's message is one that's, that's tough to deal with. And there are things that happen in the film that are not fun to, to deal with. And so I thought of the films like, eh, it's not a film I want to revisit that often, but in watching it again, it's like, what am I talking about? This yeah. is such, it's, it's almost like Goodfellas, except I love it so much more than Goodfellas. It's just, uh, a very active moving camera and just a film that is just inviting you in, mm-hmm. uh, in ways that, that many other films don't. And I will say this, and I have always felt this, it has not gone anywhere. Now, obviously the ultimate fate of radio Rahim is sad. Mm-hmm. However, I find, I hate radio Rahim so much. <laughs> he shows up. It just, I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this is something I've never lived, uh, like even when you and La, you and I lived in Chicago, I never really lived in a, in a neighborhood 
that felt like a community, you know? Right. And so the, the way, the way, uh, this sure. neighborhood doesn't in, in, uh, do the right thing. So, you know, people have affection for this, for this guy as he walks around with his comically large stereo and, and music that's incredibly loud. And, and it just, he just walks around to my knowledge. He never says anything. Uh, not that I recall. No, except his, his, uh, his, um, night of the hunter, uh, right. Uh, right. But then he also, um, it was very rude to the shopkeeper about the batteries, right? The the Korean shopkeeper? Yeah. Because he needs D batteries. <laughs> for Yes, his. that's right. Okay. I got that mixed up with the scene with the uh, crazy-ass uh, Giancarlo Esposito talking about uh, the, the price, uh, the, the, how he doesn't, oh no, uh, Ossie Davis talking about the price of, uh, right, right, right. or not carrying, what beer was it? It's his favorite kind of yeah, beer, and he gets remember. really upset. Um, anyway, yeah, you're right. Uh, he, yeah, he says uh, he gets mad at him, but then he's got that wonderful monologue. I like that moment, um, but there's just, like, the guy walking around. As you know, I like quiet. Yeah, yeah. If, oh, yeah, if I encountered him, like, on the bus, I'd be like, this fucking guy. Oh, I have encountered that <laughs> yeah, on the bus, exactly. and it's deeply yeah. frustrating. Uh, but, of course, that's a small thing, and in the end... I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're supposed to think the character is a little bit uh, obnoxious and a little bit frustrating, but obviously he does not deserve the fate that right. befalls him. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, all right. Uh, moving on. I saw a terrific new, new film um, called graduation. It's directed by Christian Munju, uh, who made four months, three weeks and two days. Okay. Um, he's a Romanian filmmaker, part of that Romanian new wave. Um, uh, it'll be out sometime in April. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, it, I, I compare it, I would compare it to some of my other favorite movies of the past handful of years. Um, Manchester by the sea. Okay. Um, Leviathan, the Russian movie. Okay. And a separation, the Asgard for Hadi movie. Okay. Because, because all of what all of those filmmakers have in common is this ability to build mass it's like drama on a massive scale out of little everyday pieces it's, Absolutely. it's quotidian and it's operatic at the same time operatic um and that's what graduation is basically the the premise is that uh so it takes place in romania um and there's a there's a guy who's uh he's um he has a wife and he has a mistress and he has a daughter who's about to graduate she's she has a conditional scholarship to a good school in the uk but she only gets the scholarship if her exam grades remain above a certain average. Mm-hmm. So all she has left to do is take these three exams. Um, and he, this is a guy who hates the corruption of that, that is rampant in Romania. Um, he hates what it does to people. And all he wants is for his daughter to be able to get out and have a life in the UK, which he thinks is, uh, going to be a better, uh, a better country. Um, but almost, uh, uh, but a number of basically the morning, before the first exam it's uh she's but he's dropping her off at school he doesn't take her all the way to the school he drops her off a little bit early and lets her walk the rest of the way because he wants to get to his mistress's place for a morning pre-work quickie yeah um and so while she is his daughter is cutting through the construction site uh, on the way to school which she wouldn't have had to do if he dropped dropped driver all the way to school um she is sexually assaulted um and that sets into uh motion uh, a chain of events where things keep going wrong and he keeps trying to get, you know, her to, you know, uh, in some ways, obviously to deal with this trauma, but also he's still focused on, she has to get these grades to get her out of the, 
the country. And so he starts to become the thing, the part of Romania that he wants to get away with in terms of like, he's a doctor, he has some influence, you know, trading influence for favors to try and get her grades to be what they need to be. And, and, but nothing is overly uh, melodramatic. Everything just sort of every scene follows the next. And it's him just, okay. Like sort of resigning the, the actor I would. Okay. So I've already compared the film to three of the great, greatest films of the 2010s. And I would compare the lead actor whose name is uh, Adrian Tatiani, I think is his name. Um, I would compare him to James Gandolfini in the way that he, Hmm. um, he's like the guy, a guy that to just look at him, you would think, uh, Oh, that guy's kind of slovenly. He's kind of a, you know, a, a regular Joe or whatever, but he carries himself with this sort of, quiet like charisma and um and this power that you like you understand why people you know look up to him or would do favors for him uh you also understand why this um a very beautiful young woman is having an uh, an affair with him Mm. um like he's a he's a very charismatic guy and he makes the character um very sympathetic but again it all comes back to um you know, none of this would have happened if yeah. he had driven his daughter all the way to school. Although the movie doesn't hammer that point, which is good. Yeah. It makes it clear and then lets you not forget it, but doesn't keep hammering it uh, home. Uh, anyway, it's, it's an incredible movie. So Leviathan and the separation. What is the third one you compared it to? Manchester by the sea. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've seen all of those. And I think that based on that story, I totally understand why you would make that comparison. Yeah. Um, I do love all three of those movies. Yeah. They are among my, like I said, among my favorite movies of the 2010s. I can't wait till the end of 2019 when we do our best movies of the last 10 years. Cause we did it in 2009. We did. Yes. Right. Uh, and that was fun. Although I look at that list now and I'm like, there's some stuff I I'm way off. I'm, I was way off on that list. I think yeah, there's just some stuff I would, I, I love, um, a talking picture and I love spring, summer, fall, winter and spring. And of sure. course I love this is England, but yeah, there's some stuff on there. I wouldn't have put on there. Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, um all right. What's next for you next for me. So as I was telling you off mic, uh, my wife and I, um, uh, babysat, I don't know. Um, our friends' kids for three days, uh, and so uh, we didn't watch a lot of stuff with them, but we did watch Mulan. Uh, have you seen Mulan? I've seen Mulan Rouge. Uh, it's basically the same. <laughs> no, I, uh, I wait. See, this is we just talked about this last week. Okay. I can't remember. I think I haven't seen Mulan. It's a Disney film. Yeah, uh, well, we were we were naming the sort of like '90s Disney films, or like, sure, especially later '90s ones. Yeah, and there are some like I know I've seen Hercules. I know I've seen The Emperor's New Groove, but I couldn't remember if I'd seen Hunchback of Notre Dame, and I couldn't remember if I've seen Mulan. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I think Hunchback is 96. I think Mulan is 97. I did see Mulan. I didn't see Pocahontas. Okay. Uh, Pocahontas is fine. Mulan? I didn't see Tarzan. That that one's pretty good, too, actually. There's some nice animation. Um, Yeah, Mulan. But uh, I saw The Emperor's New Groove. Sorry to keep interrupting That's fine. Which I didn't like at the time, and now it's a movie that I haven't revisited, but the more I think about The Emperor's New Groove, I'm like, I was probably wrong. I bet that's a good movie. Yeah, at the time, I remember thinking like, wow, this thing is this thing is razor thin uh, as (laughs) far as any kind of depth. Like, it just, it definitely marked, uh, for me, uh, a shift uh, in Disney where, or maybe just in larger animation that would ultimately arrive at something like Shrek yeah. where they took the genie moments from Aladdin or the, uh, 
Timon and Pumbaa moments from Lion King or the Eddie Murphy moments from Mulan and made a whole movie of those. And we're just like, okay, I don't have the energy for this. Um, But anyway. uh, Okay, so sorry, Mulan. Mulan, yeah. I don't like it. Uh, (laughs) It's... There are things I like about it. I like that it tells it's it takes place in in another in another country in another culture, uh, and and it casts uh, Chinese uh, uh, Chinese American actors and stuff. I think that's kind of great. Um, but who gives a shit? Like this story is is uh, it's big and exciting, and who cares? It's handled so poorly in so many ways the songs are really i don't know they're just very pedestrian in a lot of ways um the animation is fine the villain is nothing which is unfortunate because he's voiced by miguel ferrer um and it's there's like uh so jen and i just watched tangled uh, a while ago um uh and that has such a fascinating villain. I, I hate to boil it down to, to villains, but um, I think the, the good villains are ones that you either A, get a sense of who, they, who what their personality is, and their motivations are just standard villain motivations, or they have a strong personality and their motivation is really complex, um, and, and their plans are really complex. Uh, the best villains uh, of all time, and most certainly the best Disney villains, are are those, whereas the villain here it's like all right i want to take over china who am i uh, i don't know um and it's very frustrating and then in in aladdin fashion they have this small dragon voiced by uh eddie murphy mm-hmm. who does nothing with the role except be kind of standard eddie murphy but family friendly eddie murphy is not an eddie murphy i like that much um right. and the writing isn't as good as as it is for donkey from shrek and that's it's a low bar. Yeah. Um, so he's annoying every time he's on screen. My favorite I, scene from Shrek is in I Am Legend. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not, I don't even like the Shrek scene. I just like right. that part of I Am Legend it where he does good, the Shrek scene. Yeah, that is a good moment in, uh, in that film. So, um, yeah, it's just, to me, it's just a total swing and a miss. And it comes after Hunchback of Notre Dame, which uh, has beautiful animation. And, yeah, that also has some pretty crappy you know funny sidekicks and stuff but uh but it's got a uh, i think maybe it's just there's a there's power in that story whereas the story of mulan is interesting but that it's they they make it so bland mm. and forgettable that uh i don't know why we own it uh, i think jen is a fan of it and that's why we have it but uh if it were up to me i would uh that's another one for the fire <laughs> um okay um so my uh, last movie, like I said, I only watched, uh, I only have three movies from the past week. Uh, so the, my, my wife and I, uh, Natalie is her name. We went to see get out and, uh, outside the theater, there were representatives from, uh, a streaming service, hmm. not movie who's a sponsor. So I'm not going to say their name. There but are it, other streaming services. There are some others who were pretenders to the throne. Got it. Um, but anyway, some people, the streaming service who were, uh, saying, Hey, Sign up for a free 37-day trial. Weird, right? A 37-day trial, you get free... Uh, it feels like a trick, yeah. somehow. You get free popcorn and drink at your at your movie you're about to see. All right. And so, 
uh, Natalie and I were like, sure. And so we signed up, got a trial. So I was looking around at this uh, streaming service, see what was on there. And there's a movie from uh, 2011 that I had missed, heard nothing but great things about, um, and decided to see. It's the um, Jafar Panahi movie, This Is Not a Film. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, did you see it when it no, came out? No, but I've heard, I've heard good things. Um, so I have been a fan of Jafar Panahi um, before his um, uh, ban. Um, right. But he was... Um, in, I guess, 2008, um, the government shut down production on a film he was making and, um, uh, sentenced him to prison time, which I don't know if he uh, has ever served, but then banned him from making movies for 20 years. Mm. Um, he's since made two movies, but, um, uh, the first one, uh, from 2010 was, this is not a film, which is basically just him and another, uh, Iranian filmmaker, um, hanging out in his home and he starts just sort of like describing the film he was going to make when they shut him down. Yeah. But it becomes more and it definitely like on its surface. And if, even if you look at on IMDb, it's labeled documentary. Yeah. But I think if you, especially if like when you look back, uh, but even as it goes on, you start to realize like there's a few too many things happening at this time. And there's a few too many things that this slight, you know, runtime is a 75 minute movie. A few too many things of this is encompassing about, um, Iran and what it means to be, um, an, an, an artist in a, you know, repressive, uh, uh, regime like that. It's a few too many coincidences. Like I think this was a little bit more planned out than they're presenting, right, right. <laughs> presenting it as, which, um, it sounded like his second, uh, post band movie, uh, taxi, um, um, is even more to like, even more like as it goes on, you're like, well, obviously this is, right. uh, you know, the, the premise is that he's driving a taxi now and that he set up a camera and these are his, his passengers, but it's pretty obvious that there's not a lot of this yeah. is orchestrated, but this is not a film. Uh, it, it happens mostly subtly. There's, there's one or two, uh, moments. Um, and I, I, I don't want to, you know, it feels weird to say about this, but I don't want to spoil where it goes. Not that it's necessarily a, 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 a twist, but I would say for a movie that's, again, like a wisp of a pseudo documentary that's half of it is shot on an iPhone, it has one of the most indelible final images of mm. any films. And we're talking about films of the past of the, of the decade, like one of the most indelible final images, um, that I, that I did not see coming. Mm. Um, but also seems completely natural within the world. That the movie has, has, has set out. Um, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend, uh, this to anyone, especially if you get a free 37 day trial and free, uh, Coke zero and popcorn. Nice. It wasn't, it didn't stipulate Coke zero. That's what Natalie and I settled on. <laughs> right. Right. Cause that's a soda we both like. It's like, what, what are you pushing here? <laughs> the streaming service or Coke zero? Yeah. And what's the 37 days? I, guess, <laughs> yeah. I feel like this might be a Scientology thing. Anything that's weird in Los Angeles might be a Scientology thing, <laughs> including, true. I don't know if you've been to my neighborhood recently, I have not. And there's a building. Oh, uh, yeah. That used to be be a church. I went there one Sunday. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's been a Scientology building for a while now, but they only recently like redid the facade and now it says Scientology in huge letters all over it. And I see it multiple times a day when I'm walking my dog. It's, uh, 
to the point like recently, like in the past few months, multiple people that I've like met at parties or whatever. And I tell them what neighborhood I live in. They're like, what's that new Scientology building? Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's very big and, uh, imposing. And, uh, yeah, that's now my view. Yeah. That's, uh, many years ago. I mean, probably, probably nine years ago, Jen and I went to that church cause it was, uh, <laughs> it was close and it started early. We'd, we'd slept too late to go to uh-huh. our church. And so we're like, well, I still kind of want to go. I'm awake. Uh, and so we went to that one cause it was, we lived at the old place and, uh, didn't care for it. Okay. You know, uh, a little bit overproduced uh, as far as the service goes. That oh. happens sometimes well, where they must have gone over their budget because they went out of business. Yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. And now it's, Scientology. There aren't, there honestly aren't that many churches, at least the ones that I'm aware of. Uh, there are some higher end ones and, uh, you know, Bel Air and stuff like that. But, uh, um, but a lot of the churches that I'm familiar with in Los Angeles just rent out their space from like a, a, a school or something like that. So, um, anyway, okay. Anyway, uh, you got one more movie. One yeah. More movie? The last one is a, a film that I, rewatched. Um, and I probably would have ducked out of the screening if it had not been the last class. Uh, and so I, as a TA wanted to set a good example for the students. So I sat and watched, uh, the social network, which I've seen, I I rewatched months ago. Um, and this is probably my fifth or sixth time seeing it. Uh, at this point I know everything, uh, that goes into it and it remains, it remains very good. Uh, and, and great in, 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 in many cases, uh, my wife and I got rid of, um, we, we a couple years ago scaled down our cable package to a, the kind of the bare bones, um, which means you don't have HBO or Showtime or like the movie channels anymore. And I kind of think that's a blessing in disguise, even though it means I have to jump through hoops to watch, you know, girls or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means I no longer have the thing of like, flipping through channels at like 1230 AM and realizing, Oh, I'm only, it's only 20 minutes into the social network. I guess this is where I am for the next two hours. (laughs) That's something that used to happen a lot. It doesn't happen as much anymore as tends to happen with. So with Aaron Sorkin written movies or TV shows, very rewatchable, Mm -hmm. uh, no matter what mood you're in, uh, it will eventually arrive at your specific mood and you'll be like, Hey, fun. Um, Here's what I wound up noticing this time around. So the film won three Oscars, um, not to think only in terms of Oscars, but it won adapted screenplay, score, and editing. And a lot of people focus on the editing because it goes from, because of the way it's it's structured, which is j- oh, right. jumping from these depositions into the story itself. Uh, and yes, it is, it is, it, it's noteworthy that we're able to keep track of what's happening despite it jumping between two different depositions to this story. But what I think I noticed this time was just how much cutting from one shot to another within a certain sequence. Like there's the sequence of, um, him setting up face mash, uh, and then you also see the Phoenix club or just the Phoenix or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and like the, the women being brought into it and it's cutting back and forth between these things to this really, you know, this really propulsive music and, you know, you're juxtaposing these images of these nerds doing this thing. And then these, uh, very, uh, these very popular guys engaging in this crazy, uh, this crazy party. And, and when it ju- and as it jumps around, you know, there's no fades or anything. It's just these these jump cuts, uh, and yet 
there's a nice fluidity to it. Everything flows into everything else. I don't think I even, if you would ask me, Hey, describe that sequence. I would have thought of, I probably would have described it as two separate sequences. Mm. Um, but no, they are all one. They're all part of this larger, uh, tapestry of, you know, har- the different elements of Harvard, uh, in this, in this particular, uh, time. And I don't know. That's something that I, that I need to think about more often when it comes to David Fincher, his films, they often feel to me very meditative and, and not slow, but you know, Hmm. I don't think of, I don't think of him like a, like a Tony Scott, you know? No, but I, I still think there's, um, his movies have a great deal of for forward momentum. They do. And I in don't fact, the think the thing I was, I thought you were going to say before you talked about that, then that is a nice bit of parallel editing, but I thought you were going to say in general, not just cutting between timelines, um, or locations, but just within each scene, the social network is shot and cut like a thriller. And that's yeah. why it moves so, so quickly because yeah. David Fincher has made plenty of thrillers. I mean, yeah. they're usually thrillers on the surface that are actually about a whole lot more sure. like Zodiac or arguably gone girl. Um, but, uh, this is a movie that like on the page isn't a thriller, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, a true story. It's like a sort of a somewhat fictionalized biopic or whatever, but he, makes it like a thriller. And so I, yeah. I don't think of his movies as being slow or meditative at all. I mean, I think they're, they generally move pretty quickly, but just not in that, like, Hey, look at me way of a Tony Scott. Movie. Exactly. Like more of like a, um, uh, a Michael Mann or, uh, on yes. his better days, a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. You can't exactly say that his filmmaking style is subtle, but no, yeah, but not. it's not, it's not calling attention to itself constantly. Only when you've seen it multiple times, as I have, do you then start to, and honestly, seeing it on a big screen again. Right. This is my second time seeing it on a large screen. And in doing so, I think, as as I've come to realize so much more in taking this class and now seeing films, often for the first time on a large screen, like Singing in the Rain, um, invariably you're going to notice something because there's nowhere for it to hide when you're watching it on a big screen. And so, um, so including, including, uh, editing choices. And so I think I, I, I was made more aware of it now because in thrillers, you expect it to have that forward momentum. Um, even if it seems invisible, whereas in this, uh, it's, the the speed of the dialogue is what I think I probably put a lot of it a lot of the the Ford momentum down to and the score. But no, the editing, the di- the dialogue and the score they all very much are working together right. towards just constantly moving and develop and their constant developments. It's almost like technology itself if you want to look at it that way. Right. And then. Obviously, the person who brought all that together was the director. Right. But obviously, why would you ever give him best director for that film? <laughs> um, and the the scene in the movie that is the showiest doesn't have any dialogue in it at all, which is the uh, rowing competition, yeah, the absolutely. crew rowing competition, or whatever. Um, speaking of things you notice on a big screen, I noticed something. I didn't. I didn't rewatch La La Land again. Okay. Um, uh, I'm done for a few weeks at least. Um, but I remember something I noticed the first time I saw it because when I saw it in the theater that I've since now seen it twice via. DVD screeners mm-hmm. um, that I only notice it now because I saw it on the big screen, but the, op- it's supposed to open around Christmas time, yeah. right? That's, you know, it's, uh, uh, Seb gets fired from playing, uh, 
the piano at that bar because he's playing, um, he's supposed to be playing Christmas songs or whatever. But the first audition, right. That, that Emma Stone, that Mia goes on yeah. when she gets the reminder on her phone, it looks at the, at her phone. The date on the phone is like late January. Hmm. No, does no one else notice that? It noticed that it like it threw me off the first time I saw it. Yeah. Because I had in my head, okay, it's late January. Cause it starts with the winter after, after another, another day of sun, it says winter, which yeah. is an, uh, a funny little sort of, sure. uh, LA joke about us not having seasons or whatever. Um, and so when it came up as January 26th or whatever it's supposed to be, I was like, uh, okay, that makes sense. And then Seb's playing and I'm like, why are these Christmas decorations still up? Yeah. Like it's late. Maybe JK Simmons character is insane. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I haven't, I don't know if anyone else has written about that or pointed that out. You don't usually notice that kind of thing. Uh, I guess that's true. I don't know. No, normally notice that. Not to imply that you're unobservant, um, but it's just that like, I don't know. I, I, I myself and y- neither of us seem to care enough or in the past we haven't really cared yeah. enough about little mistakes like that to even right. comment on them or even notice them, which is why I missed, uh, I only saw the once, but the, the beginning of snack to King New York. I don't know if you've ever known about that scene. If you look at like, it's the, when he's having breakfast at home and if you look at like uh, the expiration date on the orange juice and the date on the newspaper and like date like on the TV or whatever, like years pass mm. in that it's an it's an intentional thing, but it's like that one scene that takes you know less than ten minutes. Yeah, uh, it, within the world of the film, actually like covers years. Hmm. It's a it's a cool little uh, little bit once you once you've been told about it. That's a film I definitely need to watch again. I, I probably did too because I didn't like it. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, I didn't hate it either. I just sort of felt like, uh, I don't think this is for me. It's kind of how yeah. I felt. Um, maybe I should, I should revisit it. All right. Do you have any TV? I want yeah. to get this under the 90 minute mark. Cause we said we weren't oh, going to do 90 minutes. Bitch. Okay. Hey, we're at an hour uh, and 12. So, uh, uh let's oh, okay. Go. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I finished rewatching 30 rock. Uh-huh. Um, I did, I'll, I'll throw this out there for my TV history class. Uh, I watched, uh, first episode of, uh, of unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I've seen it before. I do love that show. Although I didn't watch the second season cause I heard it wasn't that good. Um, I didn't watch the second season either. So, uh, but I did want to mention that I'm putting this down to the brilliance of Alec Baldwin, okay. which I guess is the nature is the, yeah. the, the point of this, uh, this movie journal. Um, there's a line cause, uh, uh Julianne Moore shows up, uh, huh as a, as an old flame of his or, or an old friend that he gets romantically involved in. Uh, and so he, there's a moment when he actually does not want to have sex with her because he is also in love with, uh, Elizabeth Banks character. And so he has, he goes on a date with, uh, Julianne Moore and he, and he loves her as well, but he, um, <coughs> excuse me he decides that they're going to watch, they're going to go see a, a documentary about female circumcision <laughs> and then they're going to eat a lot of Indian food. <laughs> and then, uh, and then she, but nonetheless, they're back at his place and she starts, you know, kissing him and stuff. And he says, he says, you know what I like to, what I like to listen to at, at the end of a, of a good night is uh, John Philip Sousa marches. And he starts listening <laughs> to that anyway. So then she ducks into the next room and then she comes back and she's wearing, you know, this bright red lingerie uh-huh. and, and they uh, eventually have sex. So the next day he's talking to Liz. Oh my gosh, I love this delivery so much. And, uh, and he said what, 
what they did. And Liz's like, oh, really? He goes, he's like, I didn't want to, but then she wore red lingerie. You'd think it would clash with her hair, but it didn't. <laughs> the punchline uh-huh. is, but it didn't. Uh-huh. Not that funny of a joke, but, and, and honestly, you sort of expect it to be a, a more clever joke, but it's just him with, with like <laughs> sexual frustration, although obviously not, uh, right. and, and, and anger and effort just, but it didn't like, it's, <laughs> I, I can't wrap my mind around, like I laughed out loud at, yeah. at just a phrase. Like it's not even really, it's, it is played as a joke, but I, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, obviously it was written to be funny, yeah. but but his delivery is what sells it, which speaks to the writer's eventual ability to know, Oh, we don't even need to make this crazy in, in its, in its, uh, in its nature. He will find the funny in it. Yeah. Uh, and man, Alec Baldwin on that show is something very special. Um, when you said you finished the series, I thought you were going to point to a line from the last episode, which is his like, uh, getting his mojo back and he's like, right. uh, dishwashers with clear doors so people can see what's going on in there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is funny. And also I'm like, I'm like Liz Lemon that moment. Like, yeah, like <laughs> I want to see what's going on in there. <laughs> there is uh well, here's what happened is that I watched seasons five, six and seven. Oh, then okay. I went back and watched one through four. Uh, and during this, this, uh, during I think season three or four, I forget when they bring in uh, Danny, the new cast member uh, who was like a robot uh, on the street and yeah. his, and, but I think also just the, the makeup that he uses like shows up in black lights and stuff. Uh-huh. And so, uh, so Jack is, is upset that Liz might be dating Danny. And so uh, he invites Liz into his office and he's just sort of saying, you know, lemon, uh, I think what I really want to ask black light, black light attack. <laughs> so he, he just he yells that and then turns on a black light and you see like all these smudges on her clothes. But to, to have again, like this is them knowing what could be what yeah. he can make funny is him declaring black light attack, which I believe is the name of the episode. Cause why wouldn't you name it that? Um, and uh, it was delightful. So was that it for you? Uh, aside from uh, an episode of survivor, which, worth playing for is coming back. Don't worry. We did not have an opportunity to record yesterday because we were watching those kids. Uh, but yes, an episode about this week of survivor is coming. Stay tuned.